Welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Taylor Scollin. So if you want to make yourself mad about the state of transportation in Canada, all you really need to do is go to Europe. Anyone who's made the trip can tell you that in almost every European country, it's faster, more convenient, and more comfortable and often more affordable to take public transportation than it is here. And the same is now true in many parts of Asia, places that not long ago were much poorer than Canada with much less well-developed infrastructure. So why is public transportation in Canada so far behind these other parts of the world? Why does it seem to take forever to get anything built here and cost way more and If we wanted to fix it, what would we need to do differently? To answer these questions today, we're joined by Reese Martin, who's a public transport expert, consultant, and creator of the wonderful and fascinating YouTube channel RM Transit, which has 250,000 subscribers and hundreds of videos with millions of views all about different transportation systems around the world. I highly recommend it if you're into this sort of thing like I am. Reese. thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Yeah, happy to be here. So can I just start with, I guess, kind of a a personal question for you? I mean, you've got 250,000 subscribers on YouTube, like 640 videos or so on there. Numbers might be a little little off, but I think that's in the ballpark. What got you so interested in transit in the first place? Well, I think you know, public transit is the kind of most fundamental infrastructure for our cities, allowing people to get around, to to move around our cities. And I think a good transit system can be a huge enabler and a poor one can be a huge hindrance to a city. And so I, I was always really interested in how Canadian cities in particular could have better public transit systems. Mm. And just to situate you uh what are you which city are you in right now so right now i'm sitting in montreal but i kind of moved between various cities i grew up in vancouver i spent you know over 10 years living in toronto uh and studied there as well and now i just kind of i travel around the country and the world uh, looking at different transit systems okay interesting so you have a lot of first-hand experience with different systems in different cities definitely yeah. All right. Well, I definitely want to get into uh, some of what you've experienced in different places around the world. But I guess let's start with with Canada and maybe the transit system that uh, is, I suppose, our national <laughs> transit system, which would be via rail. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of inner city transit in Canada more generally and sort of how that led to the via rail system that we have today? Yeah, so originally a lot of the passenger train services that run in Canada were were run by private companies, Canadian Pacific, Canadian National, now our freight railways. Um, Obviously, there have been different amalgamations and recombinations of the private businesses, but originally they ran passenger train service, and it was quite an intense operation. They had a lot more trains running than there are today, and... uh, and things were, were looking better than they are today. Uh, and eventually, though, uh, the freight companies uh, 
for various reasons, decided they didn't want to be running passenger trains. They wanted to focus on freight. Uh, Similar things obviously happened in the United States. And so the government ended up taking on the very poorly performing at the time freight services in the late 20th or passenger services, I should say, Mm -hmm. in the late 20th century. Uh, And that basically created the seeds of what are Amtrak and Via Rail here in Canada uh, today. And so they're kind of just these skeletons of former private uh, passenger train services. So, for example, there's no Via Rail service to Calgary. There was uh, in the past, but uh, and there was quite a lot of, of when it was private. There was quite a lot of passenger train service. But now it's really a skeleton network that uh, that kind of exists, uh, especially outside of the Quebec City Windsor corridor and more specifically the Toronto Montreal corridor uh, as kind of a, a compliance thing. Uh, the passenger service needs to exist, but it often isn't even the most practical way for people in communities to get around. You know, uh, but unfortunately, a lot of the alternatives like bus services from Greyhound, for example, have actually been canceled. Mm-hmm. And so uh, things are in pretty dire straits for intercity passenger transportation in Canada these days. What was behind that decision by the private uh, companies who did run passenger rail to shift their focus to freight? So you've definitely seen a lot of similar moments in public transport. Something similar happened with streetcars back in the early 20th century when you have these existing systems that exist and they grow old and you can keep running them, but it requires a major sort of generational investment. You need to buy new trains, you need to upgrade uh, stations, for example, which are something that uh, these private companies had some really magnificent stations and hotels, obviously, as well. But this, these are mm. huge costs that these companies had to take on. Uh, and, you know, in many countries, uh, the national railways do take on costs for all kinds of things like that. But uh, we allowed these companies to kind of just niche down to focus on freight. And we said, well, the public will take on the stations and a lot of these kind of extraneous costs from the private companies. Uh, And so kind of a a, a desire to focus on freight, to not have to invest in maintaining a lot of unique two-passenger infrastructure and equipment. Hmm. Uh, And then also just the kind of, uh, yeah, the kind of belief that if they were more focused, they would be more profitable. Well, I think that's that's a good segue into sort of a comparison between what has happened here and what has happened in other parts of the world like Europe and uh, parts of Asia. Uh, what explains the difference in trajectories, I guess, of, of inner city transit in Canada and I suppose North America more generally and those other parts of the world where you you know you can reliably take a pretty nice passenger train, from city to city? Well, I think that a a big element of it has been the fact that these countries uh, in Europe and in Asia to an extent, but mostly in Europe, uh, not only did they have more established passenger train networks than Canada does, and, and that's not to say that we didn't have an extensive one, but when you have a small country like Germany, for example, you just have this density of rail lines that we never really achieved in Canada when you talk about capacity and all of the infrastructure they had built. And so 
there was more uh, riding on the existing infrastructure that existed in a lot of European countries. But then at the same time, they didn't adopt cars to nearly the same extent as North Americans, uh, you know, have mm-hmm. or did, especially early on in the 20th century. Uh, in, in the kind of 1920s, the the U.S., for example, had like multiple, m- like multiple times over more private vehicles than European countries did. And so people were relying on the railways a lot later in European countries, which kind of helped get them over the mid-century hump when a lot of uh, the streetcars and things were getting ripped out around the world. Uh, And at the same time, uh, European cities in particular are just more compact because they were built mostly before cars existed. And it just creates sort of a better market for public transit. Not that there isn't a market in Canada, but it's easier going and it's sort of a more natural fit when you have these really compact cities and there's lots of them and they're already connected by railways that are pretty good, right? So that's kind of what drove uh, a lot of places to be more successful than us. And then going forwards, the Europeans and countries in Asia have just had far better policy in terms of things like regulation and how the infrastructure is owned and investment in, in new infrastructure. Whereas we've been spinning our wheels in Canada since VIA was created, we haven't really improved much of anything. We bought some new trains from time to time, often old trains from other places. Uh, and we've sometimes spent money on you know, fixing up an old station or something. But there hasn't been a, you know, a generational investments made in the passenger train system. So uh, why don't we dig into what some of those policy differences are? What have they done in you know, Europe and parts of Asia that have uh, allowed these passenger services to thrive that we have not done? So I think a a big part is infrastructure ownership, especially in the last couple of decades, Europe has moved to a model of open access where essentially uh, infrastructure ownership is separated from operations. So uh, you have a third party essentially that owns the rails and uh, leases out space to various other companies. So they do have freight rail in Europe as we do in Canada, but they also have lots of passenger rail and these uh, bodies have to kind of vie for space on the on the tracks. Passenger gets mm. priority in Europe typically, whereas in Canada it is definitely the opposite because the freight companies own the tracks, and so uh, passenger trains are uh, forever a visitor on on those rails. But having this kind of open access model for anyone who's familiar with telecom or or any other kind of infrastructure space, it's kind of seen as the best practice because you don't want uh, the people using the infrastructure to kind of be shaping it in a way that, you know, advantages them or disadvantages another party, right? It's a sort of like net neutrality, for example. Hmm. Um, if you own the rails and you're building the rails, uh, you will build them in such a way that freight makes sense if you're a freight company uh, and that passenger rail doesn't make sense. And that's what we have in Canada. And part of why passenger rail kind of sucks in Canada is because the infrastructure is not designed for passenger trains. It's designed for slow, big freight trains. And so uh, that's something that probably would be rectified if we had a kind of a national company that could uh, actually shape things in a way that's more balanced for all users. Hmm. A lot of times when uh, you know you hear debates about this, uh, the d- main distinction that people seem to draw is between uh, you know, state-owned transit uh, enterprises, I suppose you could call them, uh, and privately owned 
transit companies. Do you think that there is a, a, a big difference between how those perform or is it more about how the, you know, as you were saying, the infrastructure is set up and who owns what and who has access to what? What are the best practices around that public-private distinction? I mean, I think that the thing that you see is that in any country, there's basically never 100% public or 100% private ownership. So in Japan, people often talk about how the railways are are all privatized, but they still get a lot of capital funding. So to build new infrastructure, buy new trains, things like that from the government. In Europe, you know, the model is different. There is this owner, uh, owner-operator uh, infrastructure manager model where the infrastructure is separate from the operations, but private companies are then able to come in and run their own services uh, in different cases. And often those companies are state enterprises hmm. that are actually battling to uh, kind of run routes in other countries. So, for example, the Italian national railway, Trenitalia, they actually run trains domestically in Spain and France, competing with the national railways in those countries. And so, it's actually, the way I see it, is it's just creating a more favorable environment for competition and for a free market. It's, it's, it's a healthier form of capitalism that's going on, and I don't really see it as being a, a problem so much of public and private, it's more like having a functioning market, essentially. Mm. In Canada, you have a duopoly of railways that operate for freight services. And in many cases, you know, if you're running an industrial plant, you don't have two railways that are plugged into you. You're on one of the railways. And so it's just not a very good system for driving competition and better service. Okay, interesting. Let me, uh, this is a bit of an aside, I guess, but I am curious about the Italian system, just because I have, I have some firsthand experience with it. And specifically, these, you know, buses that they have that go to very, very small towns on routes that it's just, it's difficult to imagine that they're profitable. Uh, are they making, is that a profitable system? Or are those sort of just, you know, subsidized routes paid for by the government to ensure some level of transit access? It's just something I've always That's been a- curious about. That, that's exactly what it is. And, and this exists in a lot of different countries. Often you'll see that the, the kind of moneymaker uh, portion of the, of the enterprise is separate from the rest. And, and so it's the same with the train services in Italy. There are a lot of sort of compliance train services that have to go to every little small town. And when you're doing that, it's not profitable as you know, an individual business. That doesn't mean that it's not you know, good for society or the economy on the whole. It's just that you can't measure that. Yeah. And so you have the private high-speed services are kind of segmented off into their own business that can be profitable and often is profitable. And then you have the kind of coverage services are, are often separate and funded directly by the government as a basic service for the public. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's come back to Canada here. Um, one thing I want to ask you about is the corridor between uh, Windsor and Quebec City, because it seems like we've been hearing about plans or uh, potential projects through this area for many, many years, and nothing ever seems to come of it. Maybe that's changing a little bit now. Um, but could you just uh, walk us through sort of what the status of that is and if you know we're ever going to get a good passenger service through that corridor? So, you know, years ago in around 2015, BIA announced this plan for kind of basic uh, quote unquote frequent service. This is a train every hour, which 
might sound frequent in Canada, but it's not really frequent by international right. standards, <laughs> uh, rail service uh, between the kind of major cities. That was originally going to be just Montreal, Toronto, and then it kind of got expanded to, to, to meet the sort of geographical political mandate because people talk about Quebec City, Windsor, and to be clear, there are, there are markets in Quebec City and Windsor, but Toronto, Montreal is where the, the vast majority of the potential is, right? Mm. Because they're pretty close together. And if you had a true high-speed train, you could, you know, you could go over to Montreal from Toronto in, you know, an hour or two after work on a Friday and go see a, go see a Canadians game. So it's, it's very different. Uh, but the current status is this HFR project, uh, which the government has never shared all too many details about, probably in part because they're not clear on the details. And they kind of want the private sector to come in and tell them what to build, which is not ever really a very good idea mm. because uh, the government needs its own plan. It needs to know what it wants. If, if you just ask the private sector what to build, you know, it's kind of the same issue as with the freight railways that own the current railways. They're going to tell you the thing that is in their interest, which is to make money, which is fine. That's what they're, that's what they're to, uh, there to do. But Canada needs to have its own vision for a, a national passenger system, uh, particularly in the East. And right now, there are various companies kind of bidding to participate in this kind of unclear mandate that the government has put forward. Uh, and we'll see what comes of it. But I think that because it is a mega project, right, it, it is this whole packaged up thing that's going to be the whole uh, Quebec City Windsor corridor, it's going to obviously be billions and billions of dollars. It's a very risky endeavor, especially for something where, uh, you know, high speed rail projects uh, get canceled, especially in places like Canada that, you mm -hmm. know, have a bit of a tenuous relationship with passenger trains. And so I think that we've kind of set ourselves up for failure again, because we we have made it this political hot potato uh, if, a, you know, if and when a new government comes in and they see that we're spending tens of billions on passenger rail. I might think that's a good idea. You might think it's a good idea. But if the government's like, oh, is this really the, the top, the best way we could be spending this right. money? Um, it, you, you create a lot of problems. And so I'm as, as certain as anyone can be uh, about the future right now, which is uncertain. When you talk about private companies bidding on parts of this project, what exactly are they bidding on? Is it building it? Is it running it? Uh, you know, how is that being divvied up? Yeah, so Canada is really into infrastructure P3s, uh, it, you know, in the last couple of, uh, you know, the last two decades, let's say. And so essentially what these projects look like, and it's the same whether it's a subway or uh, this national rail project is uh, the government comes up with some specifications, which in the via rail case are incredibly broad and open-ended. Uh, and then private companies essentially bid for the right to, to build a, a project and then operate it for a fixed period of time. And the idea there is that uh, if you build a lemon, you're going to be on the hook for operating it. So in the case of Ottawa, with its LRT network that's had all these problems, it was a P3 and it's created a ton of problems. But what it has meant is that the companies that built it are just getting destroyed. They're spending tons of money uh, to, to try to get the thing fixed. 
and it's actually impacted the entire infrastructure market in Canada because it's had such a huge financial impact on the companies involved. And so uh, there is a sort of like, oh, the private companies have skin in the game type of idea here. Uh, but it's probably also not the best model to be going with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that doesn't provide much comfort for people who are stuck waiting for an O train in Ottawa in the middle of February that, oh, well, at least the companies that built it are getting soaked. Uh, yeah, but exactly. This is probably a good opportunity to talk about Ottawa. And I mean, maybe we should bracket out the Eglinton project in Toronto. But I'm curious just generally about why so many of these big transit projects seem to um, go off the rails. And I, that's a, I don't mean that in a, in a punny way. I mean, like, it's just reliably, uh, you can set your watch to it almost that they're going to be delayed. The budgets are going to be larger than initially anticipated. Um, why, why do we have that experience with so many transit projects in this country? Well, if I had the perfect answer, I think I'd, uh, I'd be a very wealthy person. Um, I think <laughs> I think the the issue is the the kind of headline thing is that you never are going to hear about the projects that don't go badly. So there are projects mm. that have gone you know less badly or have gone all right or have in some cases been done on time and and uh, under budget. But you just never are going to hear about them because they don't really get any coverage for being well executed. And I think it's a big problem because. You, while it's good to learn from the mistakes, you also need to actually know what to be striving for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I like to point to a lot of projects in Vancouver, but also a couple in Calgary uh, that have gone pretty well in the last couple of decades. You know, they've been basically uh, on time, on budget, that type of thing. The issue you get with mega projects is they're, they're mega, they're complicated, they have a lot of staff on them. There are a lot of different parties involved. So you're talking about different levels of government, utilities, uh, private landowners. There's a ton of unpredictability and complexity in these projects that is just in the governments. That's before you think about tunneling and things like that that are very unpredictable. You just uh, it's it might surprise people to know, but like with tunneling. You really don't know what's under the ground until you start digging. Like we do not have the ability to uh, to figure out what's under the ground unless we actually excavate. So uh, there is a lot of risk in tunneling things uh, and complexity. And so basically, you know, mega projects complicated. That's not a unique problem to Canada either. Obviously, internationally, big projects are are always you know suffering and, and struggling. But I think what you what you see is that the countries that do the best with these are the countries that have systematized building big projects. You know, they have an organized governance for it. So they, they probably have a single authority that executes a lot of big projects. And so they get experienced with the questions to ask, the governance levers to pull. They probably have a bit more authority so that they can, you know, if there's there's roadblocks it's not stopping the whole thing and costing tons of money while the roadblocks are moved. It's they can move the roadblocks themselves. Uh, so in countries that build a lot of uh, big infrastructure, and that can be transit, it can be other stuff, uh, they tend to have the experience and the government tends to have the experience so that uh, the government can kind of efficiently uh, execute the process and it knows what things to, to wait for. Because so often with these projects, Eglinton or Ottawa, for example, you the problems, it's not because the work is taking 
super long. It's because people can't be doing work because they're being held up by something that suddenly could delay the project three months. Like you can't get mm. Rogers to move an internet line. And so now you've got to put everyone on hold for two weeks. Uh, and that, that happens along the entire length of the line. And so it's not necessarily that we're not able to get stuff done. It's that there are these constant issues and, and, uh, and blockers that get in the way. And there's no one given the authority to kind of get them out of the way, which is why you, I think you see that in, not entirely, but certainly in authoritarian countries, they can get big stuff built because mm-hmm. they're able to just punch straight through all of these uh, bureaucratic headaches. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question because uh, that is the response that I'll often hear when talking about this is like, oh, well, you know, of course in China they can do these things because there's no human rights or whatever. And I think that's kind of a, a cop out in some ways, but I am curious if there are examples of countries that are more similar politically to Canada that have managed to figure this out and, and get stuff built, you know, reasonably efficiently and effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's important to acknowledge that that's a cop-out because China certainly does not have the extent of civil rights and property rights that we have in Canada. But at the same time, if you try to take a bunch of people's houses anywhere in the world, yeah. they're not going to be happy about it. So it's not, it's not like you can just go through people's homes. So uh, countries that are really good to look at are are ones in other parts of East Asia, parts of Europe, uh, and even actually in South America. So three examples I bring up are Italy. Italy is actually very good at building infrastructure, and they're part of the EU. There's plenty of civil rights, mm. plenty of unions to work with, all the private companies and utilities and all of that. Korea is another country that's really good at building uh, infrastructure, like shockingly good. Uh, and Chile is actually another one, especially for subway projects. They are so much better than us uh, in Canada at building this stuff. And we w- would really do well to learn from these other countries and, and how they are doing infrastructure better. And is the main thing that uh, those countries have done differently given a single agency or a single or, uh, institution the ability to push through those roadblocks? Is that kind of the main thing that separates them? It's one thing, but it's a lot of things. So I, I can, I'll talk about a few of the things. Yeah. So one is having that governance firepower. In Chile, for example, transit projects are kind of directed from the national level down. And so imagine if uh, the city of Toronto wants a new subway. It doesn't really get much say in how the subway is going to be built. The federal government comes in and, with its team of subway builders and says, this is where you put a subway. This is how it's going to get built. So that's a, that's an example of how the governance can work in a way that, uh, you know, yes, you do have to sacrifice local control. But the benefit is you get uh, a functioning subway network that can be really large and actually maybe all of the projects you want to get built get built. In another problem that you see is transparency. So if you try to ask questions about uh, the projects we're building in Canada, you know, the specifications, how much individual pieces of it are costing, uh, you'll quickly find that there's very little transparency. And that's, that's a general problem we have in all kinds of different areas in Canada. But in Italy, particularly after, you know, Italy is famous for corruption, but in a lot of reforms that were created out of some of the terrible corruption in Italy, they've moved to a very high transparency model. So when a project gets built, there is exacting specifications and everyone can go and see them online. You know, 
this is how much concrete needs to be purchased. This is how much the concrete costs. This is the because they want to make sure that there's no opportunity for corruption. Uh, everything is on the table. And what that leads to is it's pretty obvious when the public is getting hosed, right, uh, by contractors. And at the same time, the agencies that are getting, you know, talking to private sector builders, they can actually start to learn how much things should cost. So in Canada, uh, it's, uh, you know, they just kind of throw a, a request out into the void. Oh, please build us a subway station. But they often don't have a, a good understanding, that is the public agencies, of what is actually required to do that. They couldn't build the subway station themselves. And so they, you know, there's just a, a lot of potential for profiteering off of the low knowledge and low expertise of our public agencies because they, they can't build this stuff. What you often see in, in Europe and, and Asia and the countries I mentioned is that the the public agencies actually sometimes can build a project themselves. They can do up the engineering plans, et cetera. Where it usually lands is they'll draw up the plans for the project. So they'll know all of the specifications. They'll probably not do 100% because you want to leave some flexibility for the when the construction crew finds a pipe they didn't expect. They need to be able to dig around it. Uh, but then they contracted out to private companies who have to compete for the spec the public sector has built. And so it's just a more, it's, it's as with the open access model for railways, it's a more functioning form of capitalism where the public sector is a little more balanced with the private sector. And so mm -hmm. the private sector isn't running away with the bag. You know, what's really interesting about what you just said is that none of those things seem to involve spending a lot more money than we already do. They're kind of institutional reforms, process changes. Uh, is there a money component to this as well? Are we underspending on transit significantly compared to places like Chile or Italy? Not at all. We're spending far more than these countries mm. on public transport, to be honest. Um, an example I, I would like to give is Chile and when I talk about the prices of projects, which I'm about to do, I'm talking in what, what we call international dollars. So these are, you know, PPP dollars. They're adjusted for the difference in costs okay. and labor in different countries. Chile builds projects like subways for about a tenth of the cost of Canada and probably about a fifteenth the cost of the United wow. States. Uh, and and the same is true in Italy and Korea. And post-COVID, maybe those numbers will just, maybe it will be one-ninth the cost. But the thing is, uh, they're wildly more efficient. And the thing that's really painful is that Canada used to be much better. Uh, an example I love to bring up to people is in Toronto, we are building a, a light rail line right now called the Finch Light Rail Line. It's a tram, essentially. It's kind of like a streetcar, goes down the middle of the street, not a ton of infrastructure uh, in terms of tunnels and bridges and things like that. That project is costing substantially more in Toronto uh, than the Shepherd subway line that was built about 20 years ago. Inflation adjusted and everything. It's costing more to build a tram in Toronto today than it cost to build a subway 20 years ago. Uh, and that just goes to show that we actually used to have some of that institutional capability and some of those best practices from other countries, and we've jettisoned them to the wind to adopt a set of practices that are far less effective. But we're not actually openly talking about uh, going back to the way we used to do things. That kind of boggles, boggles the mind. It's hard for me to even wrap my head around how that could 
be? Like, is there a breakdown of those costs and what the largest contributing factors are to it? Do we do we know what has made up the the all the extra money that we're spending on these projects compared to twenty years ago, or compared to what is being spent in uh, Italy or Chile or other countries like that? So we don't have 100%, but we certainly know what a lot of the things are. So a big a big component is certainly professional services and consulting. Um, in the past, you know, the government would have a team of people to run the projects. And we still do have teams of people, but with less technical expertise. And so the kind of their ability to be effective is decreased significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so back in the day, the TTC in Toronto, the, the agency that runs the subways and buses and stuff, they had an in-house team of engineers, which they still do have, but they had a much more comprehensive one that was able to do the design itself. And so instead of spending two, three times more on private consultants to do that same work, you have a really good team of people who understand the local landscape. They're going to know the utilities. They're going to know what's going on in the city. Instead of having that local team, you have to spend way more money for private consultants. So that's a big component. Another component is that we're doing these P3s that uh, essentially are taking risk, things like delays, et cetera, and they're putting them on the private sector, as I mentioned before with Ottawa. But the private sector doesn't do that for free. They want a huge uh, kind of bonus right. in, in funds to be willing to take on that risk uh, so that politicians can say, oh, like, you know, the public's not on the hook. But uh, did the public ever really get asked, do we want to not be on the hook? Is it actually saving the public money to not be on the hook? We're paying far more upfront so that potentially if the project goes poorly, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the private companies are going to be are going to be paying for it. Uh, But there's not actually been a real assessment of is that actually better, you know, financially for us to do? Uh, and so it's a lot of things like this. It's wrapped in governance. It's the way that we're executing the projects. And the thing that's so painful is that we're, it's not because we're building better projects. Uh, the Shepherd Subway was built in a time when there was lots of environmental regulations. We're building projects in to specifications and with requirements for the environment and for accessibility that are the same as they were 20 years ago. We're just being far more inefficient with how we're using funds. Uh, and we're often... Uh, kind of sending funds to all kinds of community mitigations and things like that that we didn't used to do. And so we're just spending a lot more money on what I would say are often superfluous things. You know, you're, you're, you're adding a bike path or you're building a new sewer as part of these transit projects. Mm-hmm. But the question I think is worth asking is, should, you be, should transit projects be responsible for funding some of those, those externalities? Uh, because what you often see is that when, as these projects grow bigger and they are more complex and there's more things you're building, they're actually becoming less efficient. And so it would probably be better in many cases to go and build the bike path separately, go and build the sewer separately, rather than creating more mega projects that have more risk. And then in our model, when there's more risk, the private sector charges even higher prices. And so there's a ton of governance problems and the like. Okay, that's fascinating. Uh I want to zero in a little bit on uh, some of the decision-making around what types of transit get built in cities. Because uh, here in Toronto, where you know I'm most familiar with the, the d- politics around transit, I suppose, there seem to be a lot of people who really just want subways. Uh, and it's understandable to a degree because the best user experience, I suppose, for transit 
in Canada seems to be on subways. Uh, at least that's been my experience. But when does it make sense to build subways versus putting in more buses or putting in light rail above ground? What are sort of the main factors that should go into decision-making around that? So it's really interesting to talk about this because where I grew up in Vancouver, we never had a really a debate about this. Uh, Vancouver has a system called the SkyTrain, which is effectively a subway system. Um, there were discussions about building light rail, but in suburban and low density environments, light rail doesn't make a ton of sense compared to buses because buses can use the existing roads. The capacity of light rail is not actually that much higher than buses uh, and it has a huge capital cost. And so in countries like Canada that especially have high prices, you basically pay a huge premium for rail, no matter what mm. kind of rail it is. Uh, light rail makes a lot less sense than it might make in a place like Italy, where they pay you know, 10% as much for light rail, and then those benefits can kind of show a bit more. Mm. Um, you, you pay such huge premiums for rail that I think that in Canada the model that we probably want to pursue is actually kind of what Toronto historically had, which is that in the few mixed density, middle density places, you might consider a streetcar, light rail, that type of solution. But the base of the system should probably be a strong subway network with a lot of good connecting bus uh, you know, services going to various places. And I think the big strange thing as an outsider watching the Rob Ford era and all of the discussions of subway, subway, subways, is that there is this belief in Toronto that a subway is an underground train. Uh, even though much of the Toronto subway, if you ride it on a regular basis, is above ground. Yeah. And if you can build suburban sections above ground, as they do in London and New York and places with famous subway systems, you the cost equation changes a lot. Because once you can build it above ground, the difference between light rail and subway is actually negligible, essentially, because they're both rail above ground. The trains are slightly bigger with the subway, but there's not a ton of difference, especially if you can use a hydro corridor or uh, a another type of existing corridor to build uh, the infrastructure. I think a lot of the discussion that happened with subways versus light rail in Toronto was a discussion about costs. Uh, the idea was that if you built light rail, it's going to be cheaper. But as we're seeing now that we're actually starting to build some of the light rail projects that were proposed, you know, at this point, 20 years ago, almost, uh, the cost isn't cheaper. We're mm. paying more for light rail now than we were paying for subways 20 years ago. And that's not to say that the, the delta doesn't still exist. If we build a subway now, it's more expensive than light rail now. But the idea that we needed to move to a different model of transit because that was the affordable thing. I think was was kind of inherently flawed. The issue is governance. It's not about what transit you're building. And Canada's move to build a lot of these light rail systems, I think, was heavily influenced by the U.S., where they built a ton of light rail systems from the 80s onwards. Uh, but we never seem to really look and say, how, how successful have those systems been? And in Canada, you know, there are bus routes that move more people than entire light rail systems in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so while a light system might make sense in a country that really isn't good at public transit. Canada is meaningfully different on public transit from the U.S. And when we build good transit, whether that be a, a frequent bus route or a subway route or a light rail route, it's always going to be 
uh, a very different equation than in the U.S. because we're going to get so many more people on it. Uh, an example I like is that a single subway route in Toronto moves more people than almost every single uh, rail system in the U.S. Just one route. Wow. Uh, you know, the Chicago L train system that is so famous moves less people than line two of the Toronto subway every day, despite having like eight lines on it. Wow. Uh, and so when we build the infrastructure in Canada, it gets used incredibly well. We just need to talk about how to get the infrastructure built better. Okay, well... That sort of brings me to my my last uh, really serious question here, which is if you were sort of in a room with the level of government of your choice and you had the ability to say, you do this one thing and it would be done to make uh, public transport better in this country, what would you tell them? So I think I would uh, go to Justin Trudeau and I would say, you look at Metrolinx in Ontario, to some extent, that is the right idea. You have a high-level agency that is responsible for a lot of stuff. We probably should have a national version of that that is basically enabled to, uh, to oversee transit projects across the country. And they need to have a team of engineers in-house, uh, kind of a, a crack team of subway and light rail and bus rapid transit experts, if you will, who just worked on a project in one city and they get flown out to the next city and they work on a project there. These are people who become experts in building these projects uh, and uh, build up a, a knowledge base so that they understand how much a project costs. They understand what the process is with our legal system in Canada and with what consultants you do need to talk to, who you don't need to talk to. You want an, an in-house government team that is able to do things like engineer and plan the projects. And once you have the plans for the project, you go to the private sector and, and you go to your construction companies and you say, you know, build me this plan. And the team internally, since they're engineers and planners, they'll have enough knowledge to be able to actually check that they are building the right thing. Because mm. if you can't build the thing that you want to get the private sector to build yourself, how are you going to be able to tell that they built it correctly? Mm -hmm. Because if you can't build it yourself, you can't really check their work. Uh, and so I think that's a very fundamental problem at the base of all of our issues is that the government doesn't know how to build these projects. They have to always rely on outsiders. And so those outsiders kind of control the market and they control the prices paid and, and all of that. And so the government needs to get back into the business of big infrastructure. Uh, and we certainly are spending far more than we, we need to. And so when there's this idea that if you have, you know, government staff, that's bureaucracy, it's expensive, but we're spending far more money than let's say the salaries for a hundred engineers to be on an in-house uh, Canadian transit building team uh, on all of these projects, the premiums that we're paying are, are magnitudes uh, beyond that. And so I think having an in-house government a government-run team who's able to serve as the as the engineering consultant for our projects would be would be the biggest thing. And then, as I said, have the private sector uh, compete. And if you follow the best practice from places like Italy and Spain and Turkey, you build you build the project with these really small segments. And what that means is it's not just big construction uh, companies that can compete. You know, you might have a, a contract that's build this station building, and if it's just an above-ground building. Uh, a lot of contractors can compete for it. And what that does is it drives the prices lower because when your projects are all so big, you have a very small pool of potential builders for those projects, which mm -hmm. allows them to push the prices up. Uh, and so breaking projects down into small pieces makes a ton of sense. 
if you have the capability to bring them back together because you know what you're doing. Is that a role that uh, Via Rail could play in theory? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that it's one of those things where you have to build that expertise up. Right. So they shouldn't start with a billion dollar project. They should start by, okay, we're going to do some track improvement work. We're going to build some bridges. We're going to do small stuff. And then you build up from there and you do the mega project in 10 years when you actually have a team that can handle it. Okay. Uh, I will just close off on a few uh, more fun rapid fire questions here. So you've been to a ton of cities around the world, seen a lot of different transit systems. Which city do you think has the best transit system? Very hard, very hard question to answer. <laughs> I mean, I think that there are, there are a couple great ones. I think Paris is fantastic. Not perfect, for sure. There's a lot of issues, like they don't have enough elevators, for example. So the system's not fully mm. accessible. Um, but they're doing a ton of expansion. They've got all of the modes. So they do have trams or light rail. They have heavy rail. They have subways. They have everything. Um, and so they're a really good example. And they're also pretty effective at building stuff. Seoul is a fantastic system. They've got Wi-Fi and cellular service everywhere, and they have for decades. Wow, Toronto. can you imagine? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a fantastic system. They actually build all of their new infrastructure essentially underground, even though you know the cost-effective way would be to build it above ground. In Korea, it's so cheap to build a subway that the kind of the price of people not wanting to see it, it's actually worth it just to build it underground. Like it's, it's not a significant difference for them. And that's where I'd love Canada to get where we're so effective at building that we don't even have to worry about trying to do the cost effective thing that kind of does inconvenience people a little bit. We can just build everything underground because it's just so cheap to do so. So Korea is another a great place in general, but Seoul is a fantastic system. Uh, and in Canada, which city for its size, you know, if we could scale sort of proportionately, do you think has done the best job with its transit system? Oh, without a doubt, Vancouver um, didn't start building the SkyTrain system until the 80s. And now it has a bigger system than Toronto. And until Montreal opened its newest line, it had a bigger city that a bigger system than Montreal did as well. Um, it's actually builds stuff at much lower prices than Toronto and Montreal because it does a lot of the smart things I was talking about. And it, it puts lines above ground, but it also uh, it engineers them in a more cost-effective way. So Vancouver, for sure. And I think uh, a great thing to see from Vancouver is that it's also moving more people than Chicago every day, despite being a much smaller mm. city uh, on public transit. And so it's really uh, punching above its weight. As a Torontonian, I really hate to hear that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one. Uh, when do you think the Eglinton LRT will open? <laughs> um, okay, my kind of prediction is uh, everything looks complete, right? So everything infrastructure looks very close to completion. Last time I was in Toronto, uh, and so you know, probably at least a year from now, uh, because with a project like this, there is really complicated testing work required to test the electronic systems and everything. And when you look at the York subway that was extended to York University, it was about a year after the subway stations were looking done that it actually opened because they have to do all of this regulatory safety testing, etc. And so I would say, you know, like uh, fall 2024, I would say is a pretty good bet for when it will be open. Uh, it sucks. I know it's a long time 
but we'll have it for a hundred years, uh, a hundred years plus, uh, once it opens. So it's probably worth the wait and hopefully it helps us avoid any Ottawa like situations where we don't test the thing properly. And then it, uh, it derails. Yes, that would be uh, a good thing to avoid for sure. All right, well, Reese, this was fantastic. Super interesting stuff. Uh, if people want more of your work, where should they go to find you? Yeah, so you can find me at uh, RM Transit on YouTube, on Twitter, and on the other various social media platforms. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by The Peak. If you like this episode and want more, you can search for and follow Free Lunch by The Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, please do leave us a positive review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks to Reese Martin for joining us. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.